Well, the last few weeks, we've been walking through this letter, this book, called Colossians. Let me review with you a little bit about this letter. This is written by the Apostle Paul around 60 A.D., which is about 60 years after Jesus was on earth. Paul, we know he's a preacher, he's a teacher, he's a church planner. Matter of fact, this world and, and Christianity being spread has a lot to do with because of Paul, because of what he did. Matter of fact, we sit here today because he carried the message of Christ so faithfully and preached the word and taught the word. It's interesting, though, because Paul has this relationship with the church in Colossae, but it's about a thousand miles from where he was at. He was actually in a Roman prison, and he's about a thousand miles away. Colossae is, is, was in Asia Minor. Today, it would be Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And an interesting fact about this book is that Paul never met the people. Paul had never been there. Paul didn't plant that church. He didn't start that church. Many believe that Epaphras is probably the one who started it. Epaphras learned from the teaching of Paul, and he probably um, is the one that launched off the church. But Paul writes this letter to the church because he had heard about their faith and heard what was going on and knew that they were believers in Christ. And he sends this letter as a letter of encouragement, but also as a letter of redirection and a letter to make sure that the church is living faithfully in Christ. See, what was happening is the false teachers, partly pagan false teaching, and part of it was legalistic Judaism, was setting in. The Jewish elements kind of leaned towards, hey, you got to follow certain rituals, you got to follow certain laws, you got to follow uh, eating certain types of food and not eating certain types of food and following all this stuff. And they were saying, if you're not doing that, then you're not doing things right. The pagan side of things, emphasized kind of a self-denial, worship of angels, mystical wisdom that was all available to those who had special knowledge. And if you weren't doing that, then you weren't spiritually right. And Paul, though, recognized that the most dangerous part of this heresy was the devaluing of Christ Jesus. Devaluing Christ Jesus so that he focused much of his attention then on the supremacy of of Christ. Would you say that in our culture today, Jesus has been devalued? I would say Jesus has been devalued in our culture. I look around what's going on. I just look at what's taking place in our political landscape and all the challenges that we have been facing. I look at what's happened with our racial tensions this year. I look at just the challenges we have faced in America, and I go, if we had Christ in the right position in our lives, we would not be where we are today. What has happened is Christ is still on the throne, right? He has not been removed off of the throne. He is there. The problem is, is we've set him aside in our lives. And our culture has set him aside. And our culture has says, we don't really care much about Christ. Yeah, there was a Jesus. Maybe he was a good man. He existed. But we've taken Christ and put him over here and set him aside and said, we'll just try to live life on our own. And so Christ is no longer supreme or no longer first place. And so America is where America is. And the church in Colossae was dealing with some of the same challenges. Things haven't changed greatly, have they? They're dealing with some of the same challenges. And Colossians is known as one of the most Christ-centered books in the entire Bible. Four short chapters. It moves rather quick. It's an exciting book. It's an energizing book when you really start to study and dive into it. But it's all about Christ because what has happened 
is they were mixing views, a little bit of Jewish heritage, a little bit of worldly philosophy, a little bit of pagan philosophy, let's bring all, oh, and a little bit of Christ, let's mix it all together, and that's how we'll live our lives. We would never do that in America, though. Right? Oh, social media says, oh, grandma told me this, oh, my mom taught me this, oh, my dad taught me this, Oprah Winfrey said this on television, oh, I read the book about this, oh, my college taught me this, oh, and a little bit of Christ. It's called pop theology. We take all of it and we put it all into this nice little bucket and we put it all in there and we stir it all up and say, hey, now that's how I'm going to live my life. And Paul says, you do that and life is messed up. Life's going to be messed up. And that's exactly what Paul was dealing with. And so Colossians, in this short little letter, is all about the lordship of who Christ is in your life. And Paul says, listen, you've got to look at this who is Lord in your life? And it's so prevalent and it's so important, church, that we ask that in the year 2020, who is really Lord? Who is the one that's really leading your life? Who is the one that you look to for direction? Are you looking to, what did the dad tell me? What did my grandma tell me? What did the book tell me? What social media tell me? And what am I thinking? Or are you just looking to Christ and saying, what am I supposed to do in this world? You know, I tried to lay pretty low on all this political stuff. Very early on, I put a post or two on social media. I said, I ah, don't do that. And I kind of quit making posts. And, and quite honestly, my one-on-one -on -one conversations have been very limited on purpose. Because I don't want people to know what Brian's philosophies are about politics. I want people to know what Brian's philosophy is about Jesus. But as I observed this week, and you walk in here today, I know in this room, and I know those who are joining us on Facebook, we have a divided mindset about what's right for this country. I know some of you come in here today, and you are overwhelmed, and you're like, what is going on? Why is this happening? What has taken place? Our world is going to hell in a handbasket. We're going to become so liberal, and we're going down this path of socialism, and it's all going to be terrible, and the world's just all falling apart, and I can't believe all this is happening. And your life right now is in misery, and you can't believe all this has taken place. On the other side, there are people, because I've seen it, and I've heard conversations, heard posts, who are going, oh my goodness, the right candidate won, and I feel so relieved, and now I can breathe, and now all the stress is gone, and this world now is going to be set right. This week I was watching a video, Dr. Uh, Tony Evans, and I wish I could say it the way Dr. Tony Evans would say it. He said, the problem in our culture today is that we are very kingdom-like and politically driven heavy. He said, we are either Republican heavy or Democrat heavy, and we're kingdom light. He said, that needs to change where we're kingdom heavy, kingdom mindset, and we're Republican light and Democrat light. In other words, do we trust in the will and the sovereignty of God? Do we trust that God is really in control? And that's the question we have to answer. I've been reading through the Old Testament lately. Some fun reading sometimes, sometimes not so fun. But one thing I have observed is God has used all kinds of political leaders through the centuries for his purposes. And Paul says, listen, this world is going to be crazy. We must focus on Christ. We must focus on Jesus. 
So in our text today, we're going to get into why is it all about him? And I think what's going on in our culture right now in the year 2020, yes, it's been one crazy year. But how do we get through it? We focus on Christ. We focus on Jesus. It's important for us to understand why it's all about him, why it has to be all about him, why it will always be all about him. Look at chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 6 this morning. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul is appealing to their strong past in Christ. Why? He had heard about the church in class. He had heard about their faithfulness. He had heard about how strong they were in Christ. And so Paul says, listen, you have been raised in him, trained in him. He says, you need to, to live in him, according to the NIV, or the, the, the NSV says that you walk in him. In other words, you conduct your life in this path of what you claim you have believed. You say you believe in Jesus, you say you believe in Christ, then you live in Him. And he says, what, here's, he gives us four examples of a mature Christian. Someone who is in Christ, he says, you are rooted in Christ. In other words, your firm foundation, you're rooted in Christ, your depths of root go into who? They go into Jesus. He says, you remain rooted, tied to Jesus. Don't let those roots grab down to other things. You keep your roots healthy. He says, you were built up in Christ. He uses an analogy of a construction project. That when you build something, you start from the ground level. You start from the foundation. You build it up. He says, your ground foundation built in Christ is Jesus Christ. And then he says, strengthen in your faith. In your faith, he's talking about your base. It's firm. When he uses the word rooted, built, and strengthened, he's like, all that is who? It's all in Christ. Even though others are saying, buying the Jewish teaching, buying the pagan philosophy, buying the philosophies of the world. No, you say rooted, built, and strengthened. And he says, when you do that, another example of mature Christians, you overflow with thankfulness. He says, that's how you stay thankful. You stay rooted, you stay built. And so he tells the church who they are, and then he gives them a warning in verse 8. Now, don't let the wonderful place you've replaced that you have received now take over in bondage. Look at verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather on Christ. See, the false teacher's motives are not benign. And Paul lays out a warning. He says, they, they want to take you captive. They want to, that means to gain control by carrying you off as bounty to make captive of or to rob you. Remember what Jesus says? The thief comes to what? Kill, steal, and destroy. Paul's like captive. They want to rob you. They want to kill, steal, and destroy. The image is that carrying some away from the truth into the slavery of error. The false teachers want to take you from the, that treasure you have in Christ. But the replacement they have doesn't bring calmness. The replacement that they, they have does not bring fulfill, fulfillment. Rather, the replacement that they're offering will leave you empty. It may look grand, but there's no substance. I mean, stop and think about your life. Have you ever gone down the path of going, oh, this ideal will bring me peace. Oh, this ideal will bring me hope. Oh, this ideal will bring me fulfillment. And you start chasing down that idea that this world offers. And at first it looks good, but in the end you go, man, that really hurts. 
man, that was really wasteful. Man, that did not do me well. What they offer is nothing compared to what you already have, was what Paul is saying. Paul's like, listen, what you already have in Christ will fulfill you, so don't chase after all the world philosophies. What's more is their approach is deceptive. They're not telling the truth. Paul characterizes these false doctrines as philosophy. Now let's just consider that word for a moment. Think about philosophy with me. It comes from philosophia. Literally, you break it down. Philos is love, and Sophia is wisdom. You put them together, it's love-wisdom. Philosophy is the idea that I love wisdom, or I pursue wisdom, or I want wisdom. The Greek word goes back to the 6th century B.C. of those who strive for knowledge. We've heard of philosophy. You talk about philosophy. There's philosophy classes you take in high school. There's philosophy you take in college. Matter of fact, Greek philosophical schools that have arisen, sophists and followers of Plato and Aristotle and Stoicism and others, these kind of philosophies were influencing the culture of the time. And Paul's letter sometimes uses a terminology that arose out of philosophical schools. But here, Paul uses philosophy with a negative connotation to refer to the belief system of the false teachers in Colossae who made claims about their weighty authority. And so he's saying, listen, you are studying philosophies, and these philosophies are false teachings. They're leading you down a wrong road. And Paul disparages them by calling their philosophies hollow and deceptive. That means empty and false. That means a road of destruction. I mean, just stop and think for a moment. What philosophy might you be buying into that this world is throwing at us? What philosophy that doesn't align with Christ? See, the pillars that uphold false teachers' philosophy are not Christ. They they, they are not messianic truths. And Paul warns, rather, the hidden supports of these false doctrines are twofold. One is tradition. Concepts and accepted truths that have been passed on from one generation to to another. Some of our traditions, let me just say to you today, some things you learn from your grandma and grandpa may not be right. Some things mom and dad have passed on to you may not be right. Some things you read in a book somewhere may not be right. Some traditions have been passed down through the years. They may not be right. They may actually be false teachings or, or false philosophies or ideas. And Paul's saying, be aware of these. And he's, the second pillar of false doctrine is elemental truths. Paul, Paul is probably alluding to the evil spirits who are under the control of the God of this world and the spirits who are behind the world philosophies. Paul's like, you've got to watch out for the world philosophies. Where do we mostly get the world philosophy that influence us is where? At our universities. And if you've been to a university, you've received some of that philosophy. So you have to step back and go, okay, a minute. Well, how does that compare to Scripture? How does that compare to what God's Word teaches me? What the false teachers offer sounds good, but it's hollow, it's deceptive, and part of the same old, same old combination of tradition and false beliefs that the enemy has been propagating forever. Paul says, see it for what it is. So Paul's warning the church, you've got to be rooted, you've got to be built up, you've got to be strengthened in Christ, and watch out for these false philosophies of the day. He says, how do you do that? Well, you focus on Christ. Why? Because it's all about Him. Because of what we have in Him, what we have with Him, and what we have through Him. Just consider what we have in Him for a moment. We have the fullness of deity that lives in Christ. Look at verse 9. 
For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised with Christ. See, one of the reasons all about him is the fact that in him the fullness of deity lives. What does that mean? That means in Jesus God lives. That means in Jesus and God, they are one. And since he lives is in the present tense, it indicates that the risen Christ is still the fullness of the deity as Savior, and he was upon the earth, and so God was upon the earth. And he's like, listen, you have Christ. In other words, you have God. Fullness means that in every sense of the word, Jesus was God. Jesus was not just some good man. Don't buy into that philosophy. Oh, he was just a good teacher. He was a good man. Sometimes that's the world philosophy. No, he's Savior of the world. No, he is actually God. He is actually deity here on earth. He was God in flesh, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Paul's like, listen, you've got to realize who you're talking with and who you're interacting with when you're talking about being in Christ. And since the fullness of deity rests in Christ, then the benefits of his saving grace can be found nowhere else. In him you find God. People search for God in all the wrong places, but God is found in Christ alone. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. In him we also have been made complete. See, the Colossians lacked nothing outside of Christ. In him, they had everything they needed for salvation and right living. But Jewish teaching, pagan philosophy, saying, well, you need a little bit of this, you need a little bit of that. You need to do it this way, you need to do it that way. Let me just give you a definition of this word completeness according to Life Application Bible. It says it means that there is nothing lacking in a believer's relationship with God. God pours his love and power into believers, giving them fullness for this life and readying them for the life to come. Believers need not look anywhere else. Christ is the unique source of knowledge and power for the Christian life. Christ alone holds the answers to the true meaning of life because he is life. Paul's like, you don't need anything else. You need Christ. Church, we don't need anything else. You need Christ. That's what we need. We don't need need Republicans. We don't need the Democrats. We don't need the independents. We don't need whatever your your mom taught you, your dad taught you, or what your um, college professors have taught you. You need Jesus Christ. Because that's where we're complete is when we are in Christ. Christ. I mean, look around you. People are searching for something to give their lives a boost, but few people tend to find that. Strange and often hard to identify inner vacuum gives most people an uneasy sense of incompleteness. You discover completeness when you discover who you are in Christ. Christ fills the vacuum. As Jesus' person is fully divine, so we, united in faith in Jesus, find fulfillment in Him. I think a good measurement is this year, how it's been so crazy and so up and down. If you find that your emotions are all over the place and you're totally out of whack with what's going on all around us, just take a step back and go, what am I really trusting in? What what am I really trusting in? Because when hard times come and challenges of life come, if we notice that emotionally and mentally we're just being tossed all over the place, 
doesn't mean there won't be some wrestling working through that, but if you just feel like, man, I've been a wreck this year, then maybe step back and go, how am I doing about really living in Christ? That's a challenge for us to look at. John 1.16 says, For all his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. We have received all of it in Christ. You do not have to look elsewhere to be complete. When you find yourself in Christ, you're complete. Paul tells us, in him, your old life has been cut away. Jewish males were circumcised as a sign of the Jews', Jews covenant with God. And circumcision was an expression of Israel's national identity and was a requirement for all Jewish men. Circumcision was a physical reminder to the Jews of their national heritage and their privilege. It symbolized cutting off the old life of sin, purifying one's heart, and dedicating oneself to God. Well, verse 11 tells us that in him the body of flesh is removed. The word for removal denotes taking off the old clothing and putting them away. In other words, breaking away from something that is old for something that is new. And if we're going to experience the fullness of Christ, then we must take off the, the old way of life and live in the new way. Here's the challenge. We like to come over here and embrace the old way of living. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. I say I want this new life, but we keep going back to the old. At the same time, we bounce over here and spend a little bit of time with the new and say, well, I also want some of Christ. And we do this back and forth and back and forth. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But I like my old life. There was some fun in my old life. There were some things that fulfilled me. There were some things I thought fulfilled me. And so I go back to this old life. But hold on a minute. This new life that Christ has for me, boy, that looks really good and really enticing. And we tend to do this back and forth. We go back to the old life. We go over here to the new life. We go back here to the old life. Let's live this. Oh, this hurts. Oh, let's go back over here. Oh, this is good. Oh, let's come to this. And how often do we do this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth? And what happens when you keep doing that? You get worn out. You, you get exhausted. You get overwhelmed with life because part, I'm going to live according to old philosophy's life. I'm going to live according to the world's philosophy. Oh, I'm going to live according to Christ's philosophy. We can't keep doing that forever without going crazy. You really can't. And the only way to settle in completeness that Paul is talking about and to have what Paul says we have is to realize we've been cut away from the old. I've embraced Christ, and I just stop and say, I'm going to live right here in the newness of Christ. I'm going to live as a new creature in Christ. That's where I'm going to live. And I don't want anything to do with that because all that does is mess me up. And the more I bounce back and forth, it messes with my mental mind. It messes with my heart. It messes with who I am in Christ. And so that's why we wander around here all confused and depressed in Him. What about with him? Paul says, with him you have been buried. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Buried with him in baptism. This is where the cutting away the old self happens. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, when we are immersed in Christ, we put Christ on. We take off the old suit and clothing, and we put on Jesus Christ. It's the one reason why baptism is a significant part of your walk with Jesus Christ. It is so much more than just an outward expression of something inward that's taking place. 
And many times preachers will say, oh, that's just a sacrament. That's just something you do just to kind of demonstrate that you believe in Jesus. No, it's so much more. Romans 6, 3 says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And so when we enter that watery grave of baptism, there is a connection that happens to Christ, and the old is washed away. So when God looks down, he doesn't look down and see Brian Bolton, or he doesn't look down and see John or Susan or Sally. He looks down and says, there's a child of mine wearing my clothes. Who are the clothes? The clothes of Christ. I wish I had time to go into Romans chapter 6. If you've never been baptized, if you're wrestling with that, you've got to go to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. You just need to read through that text and study that text. And it talks about this whole death, burial, and resurrection. And we've done that. We're doing just what Christ did. to be putting in a grave and rising again. We're burying a water in your grave. We rise again. We do that. We unite with Him in heaven. That's why we believe in water baptism. If you've never been baptized, we'd love to have a conversation with you about that help you understand the full text of Scripture and what that means and help you answer that call of Jesus in your life. See, the great thing about buried, being buried with Him is then you've been raised up with Him. See, God did not leave you in the watery grave. You're raised up with Christ. Christ rose from the dead. This gave us the opportunity to possess eternal life. When we are in Christ or clothed with Christ, we receive this as part of the blessing that we receive from God. Notice, though, that baptism without faith has no effect whatsoever. See, the passage says we're raised up with Him through faith and the working of God. Faith is the risen Savior. Faith in the risen Savior is required before baptism can be effective. Then and only then does it become a spiritual experience. See, baptism is not just a sign. It is not just a religious exercise or ceremony. It's the meeting place where you put on Christ. Baptism without faith and repentance is nothing more than getting wet. You must rise and walk in a newness of life. I meet him in that watery grave of baptism. I have this new life. My faith is in Jesus. Paul says, don't go back to that old life. Embrace the new life. Live in a new life because you have everything you need in this new life. This old life over here, this is filled with rituals and pagan thinking and rules and things that we can't live up to. And they're all empty and they're all hollow and they'll lead you to a dead end that is meaningless. Paul says, in Christ you have a new life. Enjoy it and live in it. Because then when you do that, then you have some great blessings through him. Look at Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does it mean to be alive? There are people who are existing, but they're really not living. See, when when we are living a life outside of God's purpose for our lives, we're not really living. In the context, what is meant is the fact that when we are in Christ, We will have eternal life in Him. And the passage in the verse tells us that we are dead in our sins or transgressions, but through Christ we are made what? We are made alive through Christ. See, when we commit our first sin, we separate ourselves from God. Jesus brings us back to life. Do you really want to experience life? Then what do you do? You live in Christ, in in Christ alone. And that's where we are alive when we walk in Christ. Through Him... He forgave us of our sins. 
you know, the stories have been told too much, but one from years ago, 1940, there was a 21-year-old black man named W.D. Lyons who was arrested for a brutal triple murder in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His conviction was based on a coerced confession, and his trial was actually a farce. While the truth was never fully determined, the murderers were probably committed by organized crime figures who had framed Lyons because he had a prior criminal record. But no court in the country at the time, including the U.S. Supreme Court, had rules sufficient enough to deal with the truth. And so Lyons was a man who was caught in his system, and there was no way out. He ended up spending 25 years in prison for murders that he never committed. And we've heard these kind of stories all too often. But Lyons was released by the governor of Oklahoma using executive authority. We know executive authority, the, the governor or the president can look at a situation and say, that person needs to be set free. I'm going to sign a letter. Boom, they're set free. Governor Oklahoma set Lyons free. Prison gates were open, and Lyons walked out of that door free after 25 years serving a sentence that he didn't commit. You know what? Spiritually, we're left without a defense. We are on a trip, a one-way destination into darkness and death, and we really have no one way, no one way out except for God has given an executive order. He's written us a pass. He says, you're not, you're not guilty. You're, you're pardoned. It comes with a promise. And the promise is that God will guide you and prosper you in a new life, not in the old life. Why am I so frustrated? Why is life so overwhelming? Why am I so stressed? Why is so things so difficult? Why, 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 why? Because we're living in the old life. Move over to the new life that God has for you. Paul says, you are in Christ. Spiritually, we are left without a defense except for Christ. Through him, he removed the burden of perfection. Verse 14, Paul speaks of canceling out the debt. The debt was a payment for sin. The decrees that were hostile to speak of the law of Moses. No one was saved by the law. It was hostile because, except for Jesus, no one was able to keep it. Couldn't keep the law. It's impossible for us to live by perfection. Impossible for us to live by the law. Those under the law who were saved were still saved because of Jesus. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And with him, and I think this is the most important, you and I win. Paul's like, we win. The disarming occurred when Jesus died on the cross. The word for disarm is literally stripped, as in stripping a defeated enemy armor on the battlefield. The powers and authorities of this evil world stripped Christ of his clothing and popularity, made a spectacle of him on the cross, and he triumphed over, over them in death on the cross. Ironically, the victory belonged to Christ. Paul's like, you win. Church, don't buy into the lies of this world. Don't buy into the philosophy of this world. Don't buy into the traditions that don't align, align with Scripture. He actually stripped away the evil powers of their hold over this world. The evil powers no longer have a hold over this world. He held them up in public contempt, and he said, I'm triumphing over them and setting things in rightful position. That means you and I win. That means no matter what happens the rest of 2020, that means no matter whatever goes on with the rest of this political shenanigans that are taking place, no matter whatever happens with the virus, no matter, no matter what 2021 brings, everyone's saying, let's get past 2020. Well, 2021 has its own problems. We just don't know what they are. We must remember that Jesus deserves first place in our lives. 
Jesus is supreme. Our lives should be all about Him. Say, why should our life be all about Him? His life was all about you. For God sent His only Son to what? To die in this world for you so that we may not perish and not have eternal life, right? I mean, His life was all about us, so our lives should be all about Him. And Paul's saying, look at what Christ did for you. You live your life for Him. Let's pray.